All right, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsher hanging out with the lovely Mary Goulet. Hola, Mary Goulet. Hello. Richie Ote, what's up, my brother? How you doing? How you doing? doing great, thank you. Good, good. Wade's got it under control of the studio. Kelly's got it under control of headquarters. And we are avoiding the coronavirus <laughs> at all costs here. My God, like, seriously. Is there anything else going on in the world? Like anything? And 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 um, is it just me? Or uh, are we overreacting like a little bit? Like what am I not getting here? So, oh, I'll comment on that. Please. I took Portia to the doctor because of a sore throat. And Portia brings up the coronavirus. Sore throat and is not a symptom of, of that. No, but Portia somehow got in her head. Maybe I'm getting the flu. Maybe. And I'm like, okay, we'll go. She did have almost strep. So good but, thing you went. When we brought it up, the pediatrician says, I don't understand why they're making such a big deal of this. Right. And I was like, yay. Yeah. I don't know. If you look at the numbers, like, it's, it's staggering. Like, 325 million people this year, I think, died from the flu. I don't know. It's like 400 million or, I don't know, some staggering number, whatever. Of course, that's a little exaggerated. But it's like, I don't know. I don't well, get it. But it's interesting. And, and yes, wait. Please. Yeah, I, I think uh, there is a documentary made about it. You might want to watch uh, World War Z. <laughs> is but as one? I understand, it is a documentary about the coronavirus. Yeah, I heard Contagion is like, if you really want to torture yourself, just watch Contagion. Then you'll completely freak out. I mean, the good news is, like, we're all prepared. We've all seen the movies and whatnot. So, like, we know exactly what not to do. And we're doing all the things we saw in the movie not to do. No matter what movie you saw, it's like, don't do this. Don't do that. We're all doing it anyway. So, there, so go figure. All right, uh, we've got, um, man, you know, I, look, reality is there's a million things that I'd love to talk about here. Um, but on Beyond Age Figures, we do try to stay a little bit focused <laughs> on talking to the entrepreneurs uh, who have either exited for more than $10 million or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million annually. Uh, and uh, we've been trying to get today's guest on for, for quite a while. So uh, Annie Hyman Pratt, uh, how long have we been trying to get you on, Annie? It's been, it's been at least six months, No. Yeah, maybe yeah. a little longer. Maybe a little longer. Yeah, exactly. Well, the good news is we're still here. So uh, we, we survived long enough to, to be able to have Annie Hyman Pratt join us here on Beyond Age Figures. All right, so let's, um, let's do this. And, uh, and, and I know some of the, the numbers are always sensitive and whatnot, and, and we don't need you to get into specifics if you can't, um, because I think in this case you can't. But what we like to do is get uh, at least off the table early here in terms of how you meet the criteria for beyond eight figures are you currently running a business that grosses more than 10 million or did you exit from a business that uh was uh, a sale price or acquisition price or whatever buyout whatever it may have been for more than 10 million uh so i exited a business more than 10 million yeah and so that that business uh and it's and it's and it's sad that you exited that only from the standpoint of i don't even know how rich you would be just from me and my family alone if you stayed in that business, because um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Annie's previous life, uh, her family was very much involved with, uh, well, actually started and then exited from uh, the coffee, bean, and tea leaf franchises, or not even franchises, they're all corporate-owned, right? All yes, of those. Yeah, those yeah. are all corporate-owned stores. So when you came into the business, your, fo- your so your parents started this, yes? Yes. And there were in the sixties, and there were seven stores when you joined in. Yes. Yeah. So there were seven when you joined in, and then at the exit, there were over seventy. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Wow. So let me ask you a question, and, and this is an interesting conversation. We'll dive into a lot of obviously what you're doing now. Um, I worked with my mom for almost ten years, and and the family dynamic is challenging. It can definitely be challenging. Um, so I know you do some work with businesses that have multiple generations, uh, which of course makes sense because you you lived through that and you've got great insight and expertise around that. Was it a decision that you made proactively to come into the family business or was it one of those things where they were like, Annie, we need your help and you got to step in here? So it it was... a. Uh... I was planning on coming back to the family business, but I came back much earlier because my dad retired uh, for health reasons. Mm. At the time, I was working at Price Waterhouse, um, getting my CPA and learning all about financial stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then my dad, you know, my my dad got ill, and at that time, uh, my parents said, "You need to either come back to the business, or we got to do something else with it." 
meaning we'd have to sell it then. Mm -hmm. And really it was a great time to come back to the business because yeah. it was the, the very beginning of the nineties and the coffee beverage revolution was on. So put this in perspective. So this is Southern California. Yeah. The, the first store was where? In Brentwood, in Brentwood, the, California. Okay. And then you expanded. So the seven stores, just general geographic for the seven stores, the original seven when you came on? Yeah. The farthest north was Santa Barbara and the farthest south was, oh gosh, I'd have to think about it. Long Beach, maybe? Long Beach. Okay. Mm. And so, so that's a pretty good geographic spread there. I mean, it's tough to have one location. And then if it's a family thing and there's three of you, okay, maybe you can have three locations. But you were obviously outmanned at, at that point in terms of locations versus oh, yeah. family members. So it was already beyond what I guess might, some people might call a typical solopreneur, right, type, uh, type company for sure. But I guess what I'm, I'm wondering is why did you decide to, to come in? Had you seen, did you see what was going on with, with Starbucks at the time? Or why not, just let it, why not just let it go with your father's health? I mean, if his health was deteriorating, why not, why not just let it go? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm one of five kids in my family. Oh, you were almost outgunned then. You were almost right there. So, okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm number four or five. And, uh, and I was the only one who really was interested uh, in business. Like I, uh, growing up, you know, we had business every night at the dinner table and I enjoyed it. Uh, I worked in the stores, uh, you know, through high school, uh, some of my summers in college, and, and I was planning to go back to the business. And, um, and like I said, at the beginning of the 90s, the beverages were on fire in the, you know, before that, uh, gourmet coffee was really about um, specialty beans. Like you would come in, you'd buy, you know, bread at the bakery and coffee at our coffee store and maybe liquor, you know, some nice wine at, the, at, at a fancy liquor store. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the 80s, uh, kind of that kind of specialty retail really in, the, in all of the 80s was crashing. The big box stores were coming on, you know, we're, we're starting to build big. If you remember Price Club, I think that was the big sure. one here, and Sam's Club and whatnot. And, um, and, and people moved out to the suburbs in droves. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly people wanted coffee on their way to work. We sold beverages early on. Just nobody would buy them. Like, you know, we had a coffee bar, mm. and we had customers who could sit at that bar for hours. Because no, nobody was coming in to buy drinks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so, so that was the original model then. Interesting. Yes, to sell pounds of coffee. And in fact, when I was in high school, it was pretty common to do $2,000 a day in beans. Wow. And maybe $200 a day in what we called the bar, right? The drinks. Mm -hmm. and, um, and by, you know, by 1990, that um, ratio had reversed. Wow. Yeah. So the, you know, and, and Starbucks was certainly super helpful for that. They did a great job at educating people that they should want, you know, fancy Italian, um, high end drinks, coffee drinks. Yeah. And, ju and just, just so that we're clear here, um, the, 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 the recipe, so to speak for how, the coffee bean and tea leaf began to grow and expand was built on this notion then of riding the, the wave of that shift into, and I would think that the beans probably had decent margins, but I would think that the finished product had exceptional margins. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Oh yeah. For coffee drinks. Yeah. They have great margin. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lovely business. Um, they have a great margin on the, on the, uh, you know, the, what goes into the product, but to make a cup of coffee actually takes a lot of labor. It takes a lot of manpower. Mm -hmm. You've got quite a few people behind that register. You know, working an espresso machine is not, it's, it's, they're not robots yet. So help to, <laughs> so help, help to spell this then for those that are thinking that the Starbucks are just cleaning up. Like, I, I, I mean, on, on an iced tea, yeah. come on, there can't be what, but 12 cents to, to make an iced tea, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. no, that, that's got, they yeah. got to be on like four, five, six thousand percent margins. Yeah, yeah. Well, in your in the iced tea that you're holding there, I'm sure the cup costs much more than the iced tea itself. Yeah. 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 So margins so are killer. 
Yeah, you, but you got other costs too. Um, building a store, a coffee store, is more like building a small restaurant. You have a sure. lot of equipment. You have to meet all these codes. The plumbing is big. The mm -hmm. electricity is big. It's, you know, it, it costs a lot to build a store. We, we, uh, every coffee, uh, every successful coffee store is in a location that is generally not cheap, and they're rented. Yeah. So, right. and, and just just for clarity's sake, then the did you guys did you take in any outside capital at all on the first seven stores or was that all just bootstrapped or were there bank loans how how did your parents get to the first seven uh i have to think back i'm not sure if we had bank loans at the time maybe we mm -hmm. probably had a credit line because not only did we have stores but we were vertically integrated so we had a roasting plant um it's still there it's in camarillo california mm -hmm. And, um, and so we would import coffee beans from coffee growing countries and roast them and then deliver them to our stores. So those early stores, yeah, maybe we had some bank financing, but mm -hmm. it was my, my parents had really kept in their capital in the business so that we could keep growing. Which right? is their actually stayed in. And that, that's a huge mistake we're seeing. And then we talk to a lot of, of entrepreneurs here on Beyond Eight Figures is actually paying themselves. And a lot of, I mean, that's, that's a, that's one of the biggest differentiators is you know, when you actually start paying yourself and taking that money out and not pumping it back in that that's a huge hurdle to cross, but I, I think I cut you off. Yes. There. Sorry. It's that's okay. No, it's, it's a, yes, we, you know, in those, especially in those early days, we uh, were intent on keeping the quality up on not franchising on, um, uh, we knew if we kept our capital in, the bank would lend us, you know, one or two dollars for every dollar we kept in. Mm -hmm. And that was a great way to grow. Mm -hmm. We did eventually um, use other capital, really not exactly other capital, but we licensed overseas. So when we were doing business overseas, we then we used a different model. Hmm. And um, not just because of the capital piece, but because when you're going to do business in something like gourmet coffee in another country, the real estate is pretty difficult. You often have to have an, you know, an, uh, somebody who really knows that market to have an inside operator that knows all of the labor laws that can, you know, that really can operate another company in another country. Yeah, for sure. Um, let me let, let, let these guys yeah. chime in here, please. I, yeah. Yeah. I actually had a, a few questions, but I'll start with um, what was the key differentiator, right? Because there's this combination you're talking about. You were, even though you were not affiliated with Starbucks, you were thankful for Starbucks because they helped educate the market. But what was it that helped you differentiate, differentiate yourself yeah. from Starbucks? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question, especially because, uh, gosh, by the middle of the 90s, I can't think of a store in, in California that we had that didn't have a Starbucks with an eyesight. Mm. And a couple of our stores had them almost next door. So, um, so what was very different about us and Starbucks was um, the, the quality of the drinks for sure, but especially that we rocked the cold coffee category. And those blendeds, our ice blended mochas, they were the first. They were, we, we created the original kind of, you know, cold coffee blended mocha beverage. And that got super, super popular for us. Um, and we were cutting edge on a lot of other beverages too. We were the first out with a chai tea latte. That's mm. also super popular. And we... Uh, we kept our business uh, very um, home down friendly. So we, you know, we knew most of our customers by name. We, um, we were the local favorites. We really worked on keeping that reputation up. We were super active in our communities. So where Starbucks had a national uh, advertising campaigns, um, we would do things like local school carnivals. <laughs> we would do, you know, we would participate in, in a, a church's silent auction. I mean, we, we did a lot of, you know, local things to stay close to our community. I think that all made a difference. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because what would be the profile of 
a coffee, bean, and tea leaf customer? Was it suburban moms? Was it teenagers? Was it older people? Yeah. Um, it was everything. And I think that the uh, where you saw the different customers come in was by day part. Okay, so the, you know, people coming in before, let's say, 10 o'clock in the morning, they were people on their way to work, like, you know, needing young professionals or middle-aged professionals, even older professionals. They got to get their, you know, their caffeine before they head into work. Um, uh, by the middle of the day, we had a lot of moms. We sure did. A lot of moms and a lot of, um, I would say, uh, people that were starting to work from home, right? So like uh, people that wrote screenplays um, would hang out in our stores. They love to do that. Uh, we had all, you know, all kinds of people that had some time in the middle of the day. And then in the late afternoon, we certainly had quite a lot of teens right after school got out, head to the stores to grab a nice blend of mocha. Yeah. So let's, if I can here, let's, uh, because you're doing so much important work now, and I don't want to just solely yeah. focus no on, 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 you know, on what we're doing here with the, with the family business, but we've got to get an understanding here of how did you expand then? What was your MO? How did you expand from seven to 70? Yeah. And in seven years. In, right? In, yeah. in a very short period of time. Uh, and so to that end, where, did you have to relinquish control? Did you have to take in capital? Like, what was the game plan around all of that? Yeah, so we we didn't have to take in capital because the lending environment was really good for us at the time. So we so we we kept our capital in, our profits in, and then we borrowed from the bank. So that's how we expanded here in Southern mm -hmm. California. Mm -hmm. Then uh, at some point, we decided to try overseas expansion, and um, and that's when we did more of a licensing agreement, and that didn't require capital from us, right? That required really capital from the people starting the stores over there. So it was handy to grow that way. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, but what I would say was so important was when you're growing that fast, and to give just another perspective on it, when I came into the business, we had less than 100 employees company-wide. Mm. And, um, and when we sold the business at the, at the very end of the 90s, when we sold the business, we had 1,300 domestic employees wow. here in the U.S. So, you know, so it was, it, was a, it was big expansion. And the thing about growing that big and that fast is you can't do it yourself. Like at some yeah. point there is, there's literally, you, it's not possible to keep control of all the decisions. It's not possible to keep track of all the, to keep control of all the important decisions. So you've got to build a team and especially a leadership team that is super confident, competent, mm -hmm. um, really uh, uh, cohesive so that people can make decisions that are good. Yeah. For sure, and, and and so to that end, was it was it the plan? Was it always in the in, like? Did you and your parents did you talk about this in terms of an exit strategy? I mean, did you did you have that in mind, or was this completely out of left field? Uh, for me, it was out of left field. Oh, so yeah, actually, for everybody, it was out of left field. Wow. Okay. Yeah, we. Um, uh, so yeah, and at the time, it wasn't something that I wanted, but uh, when you ask me now, it's went exactly the way it should have gone. So mm. I'm grateful in hindsight. Mm -hmm. At the time, I didn't really want to sell it. Yeah. But, um, you know, but we, like I said, we had done some overseas licensing. Our Southeast Asian licensee was doing really well in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. And they basically made my family, my, my parents, an offer they did not want to turn down. Mm -hmm. Were you an owner yeah. at that point? Did they bring you in and, and yes. cut you off a piece? How much at that point were you an owner of then as an active yeah. involved, but you weren't the founder, obviously your parents were. Yeah, I, you know, I was an owner. I had, uh, how would I say, like more than a token amount, but not any, not majority. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so they really had the ability yeah. to say and do whatever they wanted. Yes, right. Yeah. Sure they did. Yeah. And, you know, and actually when I look back, as they should, because they had all of their capital, 
all of their kind of, you know, the, the, the vast majority of their net worth was in the business. Yeah. I'm one of five kids. <laughs> like if, yeah. if the business and they had a time in the seventies where the business went backwards, hardcore. Mm -hmm. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so they knew that, especially when you have leverage, when you have debt with a bank, if they had a business downturn, it could be a major problem. Mm -hmm. So yeah. me, all through my 20s, you know, I'm thinking this is never turning down. <laughs> that's what you think in your 20s. Yeah, well, that's they, actually appropriate because in 2020, that's what a lot of people were thinking up until just about eight weeks ago. Yes, that's right. Started to get a little bit scary. So there you yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, so for them, they made a good choice. And because I had more than a token amount of equity, um, I did well in the sale mm -hmm. financially. And, and how was they, how was that structured then? Was it based on uh, a gross? Was it based on a multiple of, of volume? Was it based on NOI? Like how? What was? How did they determine the the exit valuation? You know, uh, they used a few a few things together. They they paid a really high multiple, mm. but we were growing very fast at the time, mm -hmm. and um, you know, and we had a good amount of stores under our belt. Yeah. They they really did, um, you know. They how would I guess I would say they paid a good amount for the company, a strong amount for the company, but they also got a plenty good deal. Meaning mm -hmm. that business is solid and grew a lot. I mean, they have over a thousand stores today. I wow. Believe. Yeah. So yeah. I was going to ask earlier, um, and I know we're going to move on here, but I just want I'm really interested. Since you grew that much that fast, was it was it part of the dream to do that, or was it you coming in as a CPA and seeing something in the numbers and seeing what Starbucks was doing that said, you know, we should do this now? Yeah, yes. Well, I was the one that was very much like we should do this now, and that had the really the energy, right, the involvement to just drive hard. So, you know, like, like most uh, entrepreneurs or business owners, I mean, I worked all, all, all hours. But my parents, especially my father, you know, he was an entrepreneur too. Yeah. He loved the growth. Yeah. So they wanted to grow. And, uh, and like I said, they were super willing uh, for, you know, for until they sold it to really back the company with keeping their profits in. It was a, it was a big vote of confidence. Yeah, were you were you able to hold on to anything? Is it was a was an element of the deal, a component of the deal, uh, any sort of residual upside or or anything for for the family at all? Uh, no, but we held on to some of the real estate. Oh, so did you owned real yeah. estate as well as lease real estate? Not the store real estate, but remember that we had a manufacturing facility. Right. We had some warehousing. Yeah, so you kept yeah. other pieces of the vertical, or did you sell those too? You just kept the real estate and leased it back. We just kept the real estate, exactly. We sold all the operations. We kept a little bit of the real estate. Yeah, so thank you for all of that. And, and you know, we do have a, a fairly large um, California contingency of, of, of listeners, and, of yeah. course, with, with Coffee Bean doing what it's doing and, and being in multiple places, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a story that people, it's an inside story that a lot of people just don't have access to, so thanks for shedding some yeah, light uh, around that. Um, and so, so today you're, you're, and for years now, you've really been actively involved with helping companies get, get their leadership on point, get their strategy on point, you know, really, um, you know, get their culture on point, et cetera. Yeah, so, right. uh, do, is there a particular sweet spot in terms of the type of company that you prefer working with and are most able to help? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, we uh, best help entrepreneurs who want to scale and they really are still stuck in the weeds of the business. Mm -hmm. they've, they have team, they've tried to build team, but they haven't been able to really give major parts of responsibility over to their team yeah. so that they can work on the strategic, you know, on the more innovative, the growth parts of the business. They're kind of stuck in that. Mm -hmm. And that's our sweet spot. Mm -hmm. Just, just so we're clear, this is a, a company pre-revenue. This is a company at seven figures that wants to go to eight. This is an eight-figure company that wants to go to nine. Like again, just as yeah. you look back at the case studies, 
you know, the people that you've really been able to help over the years. Is there a particular avatar for that type of business? Yeah, there are businesses that are going from seven figures to eight for sure. And then there are also, interestingly enough, businesses that are going from mid eight figures to nine. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's kind of like getting from two to 10 is hard. Um, yeah, for sure. Getting from 10 to like 30 or 40 is hard. Mm -hmm. It's not as hard as two to 10. And then yeah. getting from 40 or, you know, from 30, 40, 50 um, to double again, that's hard again. Yeah, I've heard that the, the number of companies uh, that get to 20 is for whatever reason like that that's uh, getting to a million is one particular spot of course where you know just the, the numbers completely fall off the cliff but then again uh, evidently getting to 20 seems to be the new threshold of a, a really hard barrier to cross so for those companies that you are let's just say are that you're helping in the low seven figures yeah. What, what, what are some of the first things that because they, they've got to be beyond a solopreneur at that point it's really really hard yes, to do everything are when you're a seven figure business. So what, what, are, what are a couple of the, the, the very first things that you do when somebody says, Annie, we wanna grow, we need your help, yeah. where do we start? Yeah, yeah, so for the companies that are in the low seven figures, um, they do have help, but they have kind of lower level help. It's like at that point, they've hired a lot of hands, but they haven't usually hired much brain power to make decisions so that they can hand over big parts of responsibility, mm. right? And so, so I come in and build leadership teams often, but the point of that is not so that you just have a leadership team. The point of that is that you have people other than yourself, other than the entrepreneur who actually can make decisions for full functions, for full functions. So what would be like, an example of a full function? Yeah, uh, like marketing like finance, like um, content creation, um, like mm -hmm. manufacturing. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, so by the time you get into um, the low seven figures, your company is not just a mush of people doing stuff. You are starting to organize it into what I call functions. You might call them departments. Okay. Right. So, and, and so that, you know, so that happens, but then you don't have leadership of those departments. And when you don't have leadership of those departments, then the entrepreneur is stuck having to make the meaningful decisions for every one of those, right? So, so in other words, they can take it to a certain point and then the entrepreneur still becomes the, the obstacle to saying, hey, you can go yeah. here, but like you can't write a check for over five grand without yep. my knowing about it. Like that would be an example? Yes, and more of an example would be I think a better example to think about is um, you can't um, uh, do, you can't release the campaign for the product launch without checking with me, without having a bunch of my input, mm. without um, telling me exactly what you're going to do. Uh, you want um, people in those spots who are strong enough to make some of those decisions and it's not exactly just themselves because you have which you need as a whole leadership team mm -hmm. they're working together to make decisions themselves and taking the burden off just the entrepreneur but they can't afford it well i was just yeah. going to bring in the cost does yeah. that intimidate them that you're bringing these people in and then you're like well how do i get paid where's the roi before the entrepreneur yeah. owner freaks out yeah, because it's one at a time, because it's not everybody at once. So, so, so what you're what you're doing is let me let me see if I can say it a different way. Um, sir, I think some of your audience is going to be familiar with the visionary integrator model. Have you heard that? Like mm -hmm. you're the visionary, you need to hire an integrator. Okay, so that usually doesn't work because an integrator is supposed to manage all those functions. Okay, they just become a worse CEO. Mm. They become a worse entrepreneur because they don't know the functions. They don't they didn't grow up with the business. So instead, it's like figure out who which leader you're going to invest in first. Which area can you get a person 
that is number two to you, but that they can really take on a meaty amount of business and you can offload some responsibility, some decision-making. Does that make sense? Yeah. Are you trying to find that person from a parallel business or competitor, headhunters? Because that's, it's got to work. It does have to work. But remember, you're not doing it for the entire business. You're looking for really good specialists. So, so, you, so you're Mar not talking about like a COO then? You're talking I'm, more... Nope, I'm talking like a director of marketing. Oh. A director of manufacturing. And which one of yes. those functions will lead so you can bring in someone in a different function? Yes. And eventually, right? So yeah. which? how can you build that team one at a time if you're an entrepreneur? But the point is you need to start getting leverage. The entrepreneur needs to start focusing their efforts on fewer areas that have more impact. Well, what would and, be an example of, of that? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. So let's say um, you hire a marketing director so that you can really trust that that part of your business, that, that your revenue is, is happening without you having to monitor it every five minutes. Mm -hmm. Then you can go out and look for the um the ways to improve your profit margin you can keep looking at the external environment and see where are the new opportunities Yikes. you can go ahead richard yeah sorry so yeah. i um i'm sure the answer is it's unique to every business but is there usually some sort of formula like go for marketing first go then go for sales, sales right then go for operations is, is there something again mm -hmm. i'm giving you the out like can't say it's unique to each company because i know that well she's got the data yeah. like no, she no, works no, a lot yeah, of yeah. Like, no, so I, what? I, I get that but i'm saying for the listener <laughs> yeah. because not every listener is going to be able to afford to work with you and i'm trying to give them something that they yes. should they should be thinking about knowing that eventually they are going to get need to get individual attention and it's going to be unique to them but as a universal, let's just say the 80-20 rule. Yeah. What is the mm. what what is that one, two, three order that most businesses yeah. should follow? So yeah. So uh I find that entrepreneurs actually it's not usually um sales that they bring in first. Mm. And it's it's and it's often not marketing either because that is their true unique ability, right? So they're comfortable with it for a while. But they are bringing in um, uh, people to run either a huge part of the operations or to run their, I think of it as like delivery, to, you know, to make, to deliver, to make good on the products, to fulfill. The, the product manager. Yeah. Yeah. To fulfill and to make all the operations happen so that, you know, the entrepreneur is then really working with sales and marketing for a while. And then I often find that they bring in either sales or marketing next. It's interesting because that's universal. We hear different vernacular that describe it, but some people say executive assistant, right? So like for you, Steve, bringing in Kelly and help. Who's now more of the total COO it, than- Right, now she's moving into like operation. And so, yes. but, but it's very, it's very unique. And it goes back to one of the things you said, I can't remember exactly how you said it, but they're the visionary. So it's natural for them to be marketing and sales and all that in the beginning. Yes. Now, eventually they're going to have to hand over because they got to keep the vision bigger and bigger yes. and bigger, but it, it makes, it makes sense. So you're basically saying as a whole, and again, I know it's unique, um, some form of product manager, operations manager, and or executive assistant, depending yes. on where you're at and what's going on. Yes. And, and the key with those is that they can take over like real responsibility, something meaty, off your plate. Yeah, they're not the always point. checking in with you all the time. Too. Exactly. With full that confidence. They, yes, that they're they're really that they're they're independent and effective. They don't have to have your your support, you know, 24/7 to do a good job. Mm -hmm. So when this these people go into the positions, what is a time frame, a typical time frame to see your advice on how them to structure it? pan out and pay off oh yeah that happens usually pretty quick 
there's kind of an immediate payoff pretty quick from knowing how to structure, knowing who to hire and knowing how to manage them. Because, um, you know, because hand, having somebody take over responsibility is a two-way dance. So you got to pick somebody who's a good dancer. Mm. <laughs> like they've got to be good at what they do. But then you actually have to know a few keys about leading people, about managing people, so that they can do a good job. Isn't it safe to say that anybody, I mean, anybody can do a good job under the right leadership, no? Uh Anybody who has the skills <laughs> and the... I love how the, Sandy just kind well, of sighs. She's like, yeah, yeah. I'll answer that without There's personalities afraid. involved as yeah. well. Yeah, there's personalities, there's capabilities. One of the things that I talk a lot about um, is that every, the best performers have strong, what we call self-leadership. Okay, that means that they are able to stay in a thinking place, in an effective place, that they don't break down into emotional reactivity under stress or when something unexpected happens. What does that look like when somebody breaks down in that way? Just yeah. hypoth hypothetically, what, do, what, what would, what yeah. would, what would that look like? Crying in the bathroom? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's actually different than you might think. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not usually crying in the bathroom. No, <laughs> it's usually that um, somebody is consistently defensive, that they are blaming other people a lot, that they may resist uh, instruction from you or resist your opinion every, you know, every time you give it, um, that they uh, um, ignore, mm -hmm. that you can't find them. Some people, when they're um, uh, self-protective, which I think of as the opposite of self-leadership, mm -hmm. that they, you know, some people know how to hide really well. Yeah. Where'd they go? Where are, I can't find them. You're not answering my emails. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to understand here. Like it's, it's, it's such a fine line and like, it's so necessary. Like you can look at a company like, uh, like Amazon as an example. I mean, obviously Bezos yes. can't be packing boxes. He can't like never would have gotten to where he's, he is yes. right now if he was trying to do all of these things. But at the same token, why are we so hell bent as entrepreneurs on believing that we are the only ones who are capable of doing that job at a hundred percent when in fact, more often than not, we do a job mm, perhaps even worse than somebody who really has talent and, and ambition and fire for that particular role. Yeah. So what, what are some tips of getting out of our own way and being comfortable to pay out without any sort of certainty behind that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good question. And uh, even the way you ask it is fascinating to me because uh -oh. it implies it implies <laughs> uh -oh. it implies all or none mm. it implies i either have to you know let go completely and I, trust I, that people are going to just do it or i have to kind of you know know everything about it mm -hmm. and and what we want is uh is a little more of a middle ground mm -hmm. so the high performers what they're going to be doing is not only doing a great job but they're going to be letting you know ahead of time how things are going. Meaning like before there's a crisis, they're like coming to you saying, hey, this isn't going as expected. Here's what I think we should do. So, so as an entrepreneur, you're looking for people that have um, not only the regular skills, but have, or their, their uh, expert skills in the area, but also have the ability, have the leadership skills to know how to keep you informed of how it's really going. And so when you have that, then it's a thousand percent easier to know what you can let go of. Mm -hmm. They're telling you, they're telling you daily what you can let go of. The difference is you're not having to check in and pull it out of them. And that's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. go ahead. Yeah. And I think so two things. One might be the way, the way he asked the fascinating question is I think he's actually going through this process right now <laughs> in his life. Yeah. So that, that's probably why you're feeling that. For sure. <laughs> but um, we're talking about leadership here. So let's just for, yeah. in, in this particular case, um, we got to remind people that are listening that the people who are actually doing work, I, I not saying leaders don't do work, but the people who are actually physically typing in things or building things or making things that those people are leading. Um, yeah. 
those skill sets can be taught. Yes. And so the actual mindset's probably super important for them, which now we're now we're now moving up to the leader. That's why um, the ability to lead is more important and they're I don't think they always have to I think I'm guessing this I don't know for sure but I'd almost almost always imagine they need to have gone through that experience prior like you're not yeah. gonna you're not gonna take someone that's built a company to two million dollars in and they're gonna help you go to ten like you probably at some point point they need to be part yeah. of a company somewhere else that went to 10 whether they were the person who did that or not is that yeah. is that true am i speaking most, out of it's uh i would say it's you know most of the time true mm. probably 80 percent of the time it's true um uh some people are super super fast learners and depending on the situation they can get there without it but you you know you need enough expertise that people have good decision making ability and and I wanted to, you know, because if you have, if you haven't been there, it's hard to know where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So entrepreneurs have, you know, they have so much energy and drive that they bust through that. It's, it's a, a lot of times I, I have uh, such respect for entrepreneurs because it's like, if you knew what was going to happen, you wouldn't do this. Mm. But it's lucky that they don't know because they, yeah. they yeah. go for it anyways. Well, I mean, yeah. th that's why it's so fascinating. I think certain icons stand out to us so much, like the Steve Jobs and yeah. the Henry Fords and these people, because it's like they started at the very beginning as the person that's doing the hammering out. And, yeah. you know, they stood the whole yeah. way through the process. So mm -hmm. yeah. that's mm -hmm. why they stand I, out to us. Yeah. So So two things about that. Um, one is I believe you're going to see less and less of those kind of superstars, Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, whatnot, because the world is changing too fast now. And any one person um, can't keep up like you actually do need um, more people to be figuring out what to do next. Mm -hmm. So I think that's huge. Um, the second thing is to back up a little bit. I think of... Um, people. I, I'm writing a book right now. And one of the things I say in it is A players are not enough. Okay. Everybody wants A players. You do. You need A players. And an A player means that they're really good at what they do. They can deliver as individuals. But after that, you need them to be an ace team member. You need them to work with others really well to deliver results. And then after that, you need them to have A plus leadership skills. Right? You need them to be an A-plus leader. And an A player is not an A leader. Like Those are different skill sets. Mm -hmm. And in any business, you need to get people to move through that ladder. Mm -hmm. So let, let, me, let me ask you this, because you know, this is the kind of conversation that uh, I know we all love having, and we could have this all day long. Um, we, we try not to do Joe Rogan here and go over six hours with most, most episodes, so we'll <laughs> try to keep yeah. this fairly tight here. But if... Um, if you had to break it down into, and, and it's really interesting, and I love how you said when you when you look back, you know, you'll be able to see that those moves had to be made, and they actually should have been made much much earlier. Is there is there a particular mantra or a train of thought that you can help embed into the the entrepreneurs uh, that are listening here, so that they can avoid? And that's obviously what you do in your business is really, you know, help them avoid a lot of the trials and tribulations and brain damage that you've seen so many go through unnecessarily. Any particular mantras we should keep in mind, especially for those who, who you know, uh, may not yeah. be able to hire you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, I think the mantra is, uh, you, you know, use all your interactions with team members to um, teach them. Because, and, and, and here's how to do it. Normally when you interact with a, with a team member, you are in telling mode. Like, you know, go do this, go do that. You may ask a couple questions, but you wanna reverse that and basically ask them, what are you planning on doing? What do you think you should do here? I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna give, tell you just a tiny bit of what, you know, what I need 
But then you want to turn around and ask them, how are you going to approach it? What are you thinking of doing? Mm -hmm. And that has them take on responsibility immediately. Their responsibility level, you know, goes from like a two to an eight. And you start to see what they're thinking very rapidly. And the teaching is a hundred times faster. So your people get better. Their, their performance improves so much faster. And it's such a simple thing. You're just going to go from telling to, hey, what are you planning on doing? You go first. You tell me first. It's also respectful. Yes, it is. And it's, it is. And it's, it's empowering too. I mean, absolutely. So you have, um, and, and I'll just focus on this and then we'll probably have to let you go here, but you, you, you help entrepreneurs become what, what, uh, you call a key business leader. What, what are the, what are the attributes of a key business leader? Like what does that actually mean? Yeah. I help entrepreneurs develop business leaders. I guess I would say it that okay. way. So that you have, and so that you have, um, you have business leaders in your company. You don't just have extra hands. So a business leader is somebody that can think like you, at least for their area. Like think about what what are we doing here, and is it going to get the business results we're looking for? Mm-hmm. Not just can I do the thing my boss told me to do. Mm-hmm. You don't want that. You want somebody who's who's in it to get the result, to win the game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then they got to know the game, which in this which in this case is business. Yeah. Rich, Mary, any... Uh... Well, I was going to ask what your new book is going to be about. Is it for people that may have a very small enterprise or is it for the high, high dollar earners? It, yeah, it's for people who want to grow their team so they can go to the next level. So whether you're small or bigger. Okay. So definitely growing team. And getting yourself out of the weeds. So that's one of the you know major complaints that I hear entrepreneurs talk about. Either I'm in the weeds or I'm burning out. Mm-hmm. And it's like people, your team is the answer to both of those. Super, super important. And so the book I'm writing, it's called The People Part. Because mm-hmm. most entrepreneurs say, I'm terrible at the people part. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you can get just a little better at the people part, it's life-changing for you. Mm-hmm. It's a huge leverage for your business. So that's that's what I'm writing about. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, kind of two things. One, I'm going to go back to where I think, Steve, subconsciously, you had a brilliant name for the show, Beyond Eight Figures, because that, you know, I think coming into it, you thought it was figures and, you know, this Just numbers. What, numbers and, you know, how much money and getting funding. And is the more we talk to people, it, it really is of course, figures, right? It's business, mm-hmm. but it's what's beyond those figures. Yeah, it and it's the people part and it's the relationships it and how you tell the story and people wanting you yes. more than you trying to twist their arm to get them to want you, you know? 100%. And, and um, so one, I just kudos to that. Like you're, you've always been good at naming stuff. So, I said, but this, this is not iced tea, by the way, it's, <laughs> it is full of scotch, but that's a whole, yes, that's where all the inspiration comes uh, from. So there you go. Because uh, the previous owner of Liquor.com. Exactly. Um, but actually, I'm going to kind of go maybe a little meta. I don't know what, if that's the right term for it. But go back to the mindset part of this for a second. And what is it that gets us as humans, as entrepreneurs, that want to tell so much? And how can we break that? Because it's, it's very obvious, even as a parent, you know, when I'm trying to tell my daughter something, I don't even come close to getting as much done as when I'm asking her questions. And this is just as a child. So what, how can we notice that? And what's something we can do to kind of scratch the record on that and, and help us be better at that? Yeah. Um, uh, to think of your, your team, and your, you know, anybody you're working with as a valuable asset. Like, it's like, I'll go back to a sports analogy, right? It's like, if you're a general manager or a coach and you look at your team, you're like, oh my God, that's my whole investment. That's right there. Like that's, that's, you know, there's, that's the thing I need to perform. And they get treated like the assets that they are. And that doesn't mean that they don't get worked super hard. They do. But you, you, but you're going to interact with them in a way that empowers their um, skills, their development. 
And I think that's how to think of it. That yeah. you can't think of your people as a labor expense. Yeah. Mm. It's super interesting you use that as it because I was thinking about literally on the drive up about how certain sports teams just always seem to dominate. I mean, all those athletes in the league, yeah. they're all amazing. They all could run faster, jump faster, lift more weights than we can. Every one of them. Yeah. But why, you know, it seems to be, it is those franchises that treat their, it's yes. not just the money, it's, it's they get to go, oh, sure, take the private jet, like Brady, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, take the private jet and do this, and all these little things, well, yeah. those are big things too, yeah. you know, like. Huge. Andy, we're going to, uh, we're going to have to let you go. So I, I just want to give you an opportunity to share. Uh, I know you have a gift for, uh, for our listeners here, uh, what, yeah. you, what you call the secret recipe. And so first of all, uh, generally speaking, if people want more information about you, uh, yeah. where is the best place for them to go? And then please share where they can go for the secret recipe. Yeah. So they can, you know, find me and my team on our website. It's leading edge teams. So www.leading edge and teams with an S. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, if um, you want to grab a, uh, a worksheet or a handout that talks about reversing burnout and really how to empower people, how to raise their interest and their commitment and their dedication in your business, um, then you can go to uh, www.leadingedgeteams.com forward slash beyond. Nice. Like, like beyond eight figures, beyond. Awesome. Well, look, I, I, I know we've been trying to, to coordinate this for quite some time. I'm glad we were finally yeah. able to do so. Really enjoyed yeah, thank you. everything that we were able to cover here. But uh, needless to say, I mean, just really tip of the iceberg stuff. So definitely check out all that Annie Hyman Pratt has going on. Go to leadingedgeteams.com and then throw a slash beyond on that and grab, uh, grab that free secret recipe as well. So Annie, we're going to let you jump. Thank you so much. We'll Thank talk you so much. Really, really Thanks. soon. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, you know, and it's funny. So, right, you know, as we're talking here, we've got a, a million texts coming in from from Kelly. You know, like Kelly's always you know, tuning in, listening, taking notes, and the whole nine. And um, and this is just something we, she and I, have really been struggling with, and you know, trying to trying to figure out is how how do we even for even for Kelly, like I've I've given Kelly so much to do that now she's at the point where she's overwhelmed and she can't possibly do it all. So how does she let go of some of the things that I let go of? And, and you know, it's, we, we are right there. Like it totally relevant to where we are. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, so, and I think that's the hardest part really for, for most entrepreneurs, for most founders is to, to shift into that, that role of, of being a visionary and, well, I think they already have been a visionary, but then when they get in the weeds, they, they, it's their baby. Mm -hmm. But I think part of the struggle for me is if, if I'm not doing something, if I'm just laying out the big vision and you guys go do it, then I feel like I'm not being productive or I'm not contributing in enough of a way. Hmm. You know, I think that's the struggle for me. Like if I'm not in the weeds doing it, or, you know what I mean? See, I, it I still don't. comes back to mindset. Tell me. It still comes back to mindset. I'm listening. Well, I mean... I'm what? not saying I have the answer <laughs> as to what that mindset's supposed to be, but yeah. like in four seconds, by the way, you being able to just let it go. Yeah. There you go. Let it go. I'm just going to play that song over and over again. Yep. And that'll be the way. All right. For Mary Goulet and Richie Ote, I'm Steve Olsher. We'll talk to you guys next time.